Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 322 for August 29th, 2016. On today's show, we're talking about choosing joinery, sanding small pieces without rounding them over, hand planing crowns, and gluing up joints. But before we get to all that, let's thank some very special people. We've got a couple folks who use PayPal to send us a few bucks, Carl Luff and uh, Tux Traditions LLC. It was a business name. I didn't have an individual's name to thank there. So thank you so much. We appreciate that support. And last time, guys, I said something like, there's no way we're going to get another 50 people on Patreon, right? So we'll never have <laughs> that problem again. And we didn't. I was right. Yep, but we, we did, did get 43 more. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I'll I'm be on, people. Good. You were seven short. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you guys are such slackers. So I I will definitely be reading those at the end of the show. Uh, that's just too many to read up top here. But um, I do want to announce awesome. that like, we, we hit a couple crazy. more goals here. So we've got the going live goal, which we're actually testing right now. So if you're listening what? to this, yeah, we're actually giving it a shot. We'll see what happens. Um, so we're going to broadcast live every Monday when we do the show. And uh, we also hit the second goal, which was, what the heck is it? Oh, guests. So uh, once a month, at least once a month, maybe we'll do it more, see how it goes, but we're going to have a guest on the show. And our idea of having a guest is not to sit here and interview them because that's just kind of boring. We're actually going to put them to work and make them a co-host of the show. Uh, So uh, in the future, I'll be asking patrons uh, on Patreon what they think and who they want to come on the show, because that'll probably be the funnest way to do it, is to actually pull people on that they want to hear from. So uh, I'm very excited, though. I mean, hitting two goals that quickly tells me I probably set the goals a little too low. (laughs) (laughs) That's what that tells me. What did Sam Malouf teach us? Charge more. Yeah, so... I'm actually, I'm actually glad though. It's, it's very cool. These are fun things that we really want, are excited to be able to do. And it's uh, all because folks are jumping in and really helping out and supporting us. And if you want to, you can go to patreon.com slash wood talk and you can find out all the details there. All right. Quick reminder though, we uh, do have the WIA uh, meetup there going on with the Modern Woodworkers Association and Wood Talk. So if you're interested in that and you happen to be going to Woodworking in America in September, it's on the 15th at 5 p.m. at Moorline Logger House. That's, uh, I'm trying like reading through my stand here. Uh, more, more, yeah, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> it's Four funny. Line. The, the video is going to be distracting as I'm watching these these two goons that I do the show with. <laughs> this here. pop filter is covering the whole show notes. I gotta. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Sort of, this is a challenge. Definitely a challenge. <laughs> All right, so let's get into what's on the bench. Lots of good stuff going on, I think, in uh, in our shops. I actually just finished up the small box project, and that's the little decorative jewelry boxes that look like uh, coffins for hamsters. Um, and other, other small, <laughs> small animals look like they fit nicely in there, but the finish those up and got three of them done, had a little, like two different ver- varieties of them, two different versions of them. Um, but a couple different species of wood and just a great project just to consume a bunch of that, that scrap material that you have no other use for. So, uh, glad that that is finished up, have a video probably in a couple of weeks out on that one. Um, so since I was able to close the chapter on that, I started thinking about the grandfather clock build. And uh, kind of in a holding pattern, waiting for some design decisions to be made. So I went out and picked up the lumber. And I'm going to go with good old Cortison White Oak, which, as I found out today, is something that doesn't really sell a whole lot uh, around this area because it was about, you know, five piles back from the front of the pile. <laughs> so I had to be that guy again today because um, they have like maybe eight boards sitting on top and they're in the front. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got that right here. He pulls it down and it's just garbage. It's all uh-huh. twisted. It's warped. And like you see one one face and you go, oh, this might be usable. And I flip it over the underside. It's all, there's all kinds of divots and ditches in there. And I'm and like in those areas, I wouldn't be able to get a three quarter thickness out of it. So mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, I, I, I hate to do this to you, but I cannot use this material. I said, I, I might take it off your hands and, and just call it done and I'd figure it out. But you've got to get me a, some kind of a discount on this stuff. And he's like, well, we never discount lumber. I'm like, well, then I will never buy those. So I hate <laughs> never to do it. discount lumber. Wow. That's what they said. Wow. Uh, so I sort of like just international policy. We, we don't negotiate with tariffs. Yeah, we don't discount lumber. I think it was <laughs> along those lines. Just wait for the throw out in the bin. Yeah. yeah. Grab it out of the garbage bin. <laughs> right. Well, so, you know, it's interesting. I think just white oak in general is is falling out of – a lot of people have fallen out of love with it because it you, we can't move it for anything we've got truckloads and truckloads of white oak certainly we always have red oak but actually red oak moves more than white oak now 
I don't know. Maybe it's just one of those cyclical trend things. Yeah, yeah. So either way, it, it was, you know, I got what I needed, but it just took a long time for them to, to pull everything down and to move stuff around. I, I felt bad, but, you know, they do want to sell the material, I assume. So I think it's okay. <laughs> but, uh, well, I you mean, know, they have a forklift, right? They do. Yeah, of course. Well, it's not that. I mean, it's not like, hey. <laughs> yeah, hey, go lift this stuff and move it for me. <laughs> yeah, it was still, though, I don't know whether it's them or me. And, and frankly, this guy today was cool. He was actually totally cool about it. He was, his boss came in and we had to wait like five minutes for them to do something. So after his boss left, he was complaining about his boss. Like, can you believe this guy? We had to sit here and wait for him. Yeah, I'm in the middle of dealing with a customer and he's like complaining to me about his boss. So I was like, I guess we're, we're cool with each other. We're buds, right? So, <laughs> so he wasn't that put out by it, but I guess I just, I feel bad about it. It's just, you know, it's, it's my issue. It's me, not you. Well, that right there puts you like miles above in his estimation for most of the customers that come in who, you know, as far as they're concerned, you're there to be their forklift monkey and move stuff around. (laughs) I think when, you know, and this is a place that deals with high volume and Shannon, you're, you're, you've probably got a situation like that too. When you're a high volume outfit and somebody just comes along and wants 20 or 30 board feet, you know, they're the small fish and, and it's, it's difficult to provide great customer service for those people, but also be really focused on those big orders that are being loaded into back of, you know, 18 wheelers that are being shipped off today. You know, it's, it's difficult to kind of balance. And this place actually does a fairly good job of that, which is, which is kind of nice. Well, and I think that's like when when he says, you know, we don't discount lumber. I mean, he's dealing with a fixed cost Mm -hmm. on that particular lumber. And that's the problem with, you know, as much as you want to service the little guy, I don't think anybody out there is like, no, I don't want to talk to you because you're only 20 board feet. It's just a matter of how much time does it take? And, I, you know, my boss is riding me to get out, you know, such and such a truckload and yeah. all that stuff. It's the same everywhere. But the problem is, is when a guy comes in and picks 20 board feet and like we do, we go and pick like the cream of that particular pack. <laughs> so that pack of lumber may be, you know, three dollars and 20 cents a board foot. Or, yeah. you know, 3,200 per thousand board feet is what the cost is attached to that. Well, you pulled out all the FAS and better and all that's left, it sounded like in your case, was common and like number two common mm-hmm. with like kiln defects and milling defects and all <laughs> kinds of just crap. But yeah. it's still the same cost. Right. It's still $3.20 a board foot. Sure. And most of the time, the profit margins on this stuff is so razor thin. Um, yeah, I guess that's the benefit of going to a wholesaler is they're not used to retail pricing. So generally they're like, you know, they're, if they're making a dollar a board foot, they're happy. Right. You know, so it's like, well, I don't really have much to play with here and I can't really, you know, discount this because the cost is still there. And that, right. that's the, that's probably where he's coming from in this end is I can't really discount it, you know, cause we still paid x amount for it yeah you know? well and the thing is this is the kind of place too where you'll see that stuff like the next time i go i might see those eight boards sitting off to the side somewhere <laughs> and in a pile with a bunch of other crap and it's and i guess you know the, again the volume thing it's probably not worth the extra effort it would take to mark it down make sure it's done properly or get approval for it it's just not worth it for the way their their process works out but um i don't i don't hold any grudges against them i honestly would rather not have that material i'm glad i got the stuff that i got um right. so i was you know wound up happier when it was all said and done anyway so um but yeah it's all good so i'm ready to move on to this clock thing i'm i may have to build this may be one that i have to prototype first um i'm i'm not comfortable totally committing to all of these dimensions without fitting and anyone who's watching the video you might see behind me some of the parts i'm actually playing with the internal mechanisms to make sure all the dimensions are are where they need to be i mean these things have to meet up perfectly um, for these clock parts to work properly and the only way to, to determine it 100 is to build it so i could either you know try to cobble something together that eh, like sort of a prototype but made out of plywood or something just to figure it out or i could just jump in build one make adjustments fix it and then if it doesn't work out consider that the practice run and then uh, actually build the real one after I make those adjustments and make the final plan for the guild. So this may be my first true prototype build that I've ever done. Maybe. See, you should have bought that crappy white oak. I know. That would have been perfect for it, right? <laughs> Put this bent piece right here, nail it in right there, nobody will notice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning this clock that looks like some like Boy Scout Cub Scout birdhouse with nails and like oh, yeah. crooked pieces on it. No, it'll be one of those. Uh, rustic. It'll be one of those whimsical pieces. Like it looks like it's alive, leaning to the side, <laughs> like yeah, something from uh, Alice in Wonderland or whatever. Yeah, it's totally a Vanderlist character piece. That's yeah, what. exactly. That's what I'm going for. Um, so, Matt, sounds like you had an exciting time. I did. I just got back from IWF, and that was a blast. Nice. 
Have you guys been to a show like that before? I think you've been to AWF. I've been, I've been to, to that show. IWF once and AWFS like three times. So pretty similar then, I mm-hmm. would think, because it's, it's definitely not a consumer show. But it was very cool to see it from that side of things, too. Like, the shows that I'm used to, like, woodworking-related-wise, it's like, you go to the booth and you can, like, buy stuff at the booth. Like, right. it's pretty rare to find a booth at this show where you actually buy something there at the booth. Yeah, you don't go there to spend money. Yeah, you don't. You go there to make connections, which is really cool from, like, this side of things, from, like, the, the side that, like, we're on, where it's, like, if you want to work with a company, you got to email them or call them and hopefully they get back to you or whatever. You go to a show like this, you walk up to someone, and there's the marketing person that you're trying to get to talk to all this time. So it's really great to be able to build connections that way. Nice. And was it just, was that what you expected? Or were you um, sort of surprised that there isn't necessarily the fan base that you might find at like the woodworking shows? I kind of expected what I saw. I didn't expect it to be so ridiculously big, um, but um, I expected it to be more of a, like an industry kind of thing. And they had all kinds of crazy like machinery. Like if you want like a 30 foot long machine that all it does is edge banding. Yeah. And like, it's like huge. That's all it does though is put banding on plywood. They got that there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they want, <laughs> they've got machines that basically, at least last time I was there, they had a few where there's like scaffolding sort of built around it. So you can get to the various parts of the machine. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's right. like Take stuff that can tell the internals and everything. Yeah. It's, there's some insane equipment there for sure. How was the representation on like the brands we know as small shop woodworkers? Actually that there were a lot more than I thought they were going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know like, off the top of my head, but there were a lot of like, um, well, obviously Trident was there because that's what I was with, but they had like the Tormek booth and like, um, uh, who else? Betsy was there. Uh, Lee Valley was there. That was kind of a surprise. I wasn't expecting to see them there. Well, I saw them on the list before, but I was surprised when I saw them on the list. Yeah, that is kind um, of surprising. Like General was there. Freud was there. Uh, Whiteside was there. Laguna was there. Um, Sawstop was there. Uh, the Panerouter guys were there. Um, what else is there? Like General Finishes was there. Mm-hmm. So like there there are those like companies that like we might know about and there were like but there were like like way way more companies I had never heard of before. Yeah. Because I'm not in that kind of industry like I don't I mean they had machines that you it takes a stack of plywood and it spits out cabinet boxes. That's yeah. all it does. Yeah. Like, you don't have to touch it. It's like this plywood cabinet box. You should get one of those. <laughs> I mean that that yeah. could be that could be fun to have in the shop. <laughs> Actually, the, the coolest part about seeing that stuff is they gave me a lot of ideas for my sawmill, yeah. like all these like mechanical things and uh, that are going on there. But otherwise, I would have no, there you no go. interest in that. I guess. So you just throw a log on the on the um, <laughs> the whatever you call that track bed, and out comes a cabinet box. You know, you just take it <laughs> one step further, Matt, from log to cabinet. Well, yeah, I, they have the, the kiln plywood. guys there too, so they could like. I get some kiln equipment while I'm there for this undertaking, apparently, Shannon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All in one, baby. Well, the, All in one. The the flip side of this conversation is we had uh, representatives from my uh, company who were there. And just to, to give you an idea, like, they went shopping, not obviously to, to buy stuff, because as we've already said, that's not where you go to buy stuff. But it was more of, hey, send out a rep. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're interested in buying stuff. And it's like... <laughs> You know, oh, okay, well, we're going to need that. And, well, that's $27,000. All right, well, what about the add-on pack? Well, that's only, you know, $3,800. Oh, well, we got to get that. And it's like, (laughs) I I was talking to the yard foreman today. I was like, how did IWF go? And he's like, did you know that bandsaw we have? It has a, like, a a digital readout, like, adjustment gearbox that we don't have. Like, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's only $3,800. So we went ahead and got it. it. You know, it's just like, (laughs) it's just a different world. You know, but if you think about it as a, you know, multi million dollar corporation yeah thirty eight hundred dollars for a more precise resaw absolutely that's nothing but it's just a totally foreign way like when we go to um the woodworking shows like Mm -hmm. our show the retail consumer show totally different you know i was actually surprised to hear that there were as many of those brands that we know there like what was lee valley doing there i don't know but it was the same booth they always have anytime i've been to those shows there's been very little, if any, Hantle representation. Uh, I think the oh, who are the um, Bloom? I think it's Bloom Smoother, the one with the the wooden planes that yeah, still yeah. have the mechanical blade adjustment and the the weird little uh, insert blade things. 
Uh, they were at one of the shows. But other than that, I can't recall any Hansel representation. Um, and I'm, I mean, this is a few years ago. This is like pre-kids for me. So four or five years ago at this point. But yeah, there, yeah. there wasn't much. Nerex was there too, which I thought was oh, interesting. Nice. I've seen them in, in person. I, I wonder, I would love to talk to them and find out how how it went like as yeah. these companies have to assess whether it's worth the expense to, to get out there, pay for the booth. Like, do they get enough out of it to justify continuing to do it? I just, you know, especially a company like Lee Valley, like a, a hand tool company, mm-hmm. I'd be really curious to see like who commercially is buying your tools. Cause yeah, that would give me, yeah, it would be a little heartening, you know? Cause I know when I show up at the yard with a handsaw, the guys there like make fun of me and, mock me openly and you know what are you doing with the hand tools you loser you know i mean there's just a totally different mindset you know this love of hand work and everything that we as you know call a spade a spade hobbyists Mm -hmm. you know what we are you know we love it and all these contractors and guys that i work with just think that's the stupidest thing ever you know like they still make hand saws right who makes hand saws yeah it's sort of a joke Yeah, but, you know, I had the same impression, you know, coming out of the new Yankee workshop, you know, upbringing that these tools didn't exist. So I think it would be actually kind of exciting if if Lee Valley actually did have a market in in an environment like that. That's a good sign. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of boat builders and things that we sell to. A lot of those kind of, um, I don't know, really, really specialized um, interiors and things like that where there's, there's just really no easy way to do it. So that guy's got a block plane in there fairing a, a, a curve or something like that. But I was going to say, like, maybe it's also recognizing there is a different segment of the audience there being sort of that home hobbyist. But if I'm not mistaken, don't you need to actually be a business to get tickets? This isn't sort of just a open to public event. And I could totally be wrong there, but I thought you need to have an actual business well, to get the in. field is required, but you can put whatever you want in the field. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's a maraca shop. You nice. <laughs> make anything up. <laughs> uh, I forget okay. who it was. One person I met there had hobbyist as the business name. Nice. Ah, right on. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, that's good to know. But it is, I like guess life. if you're if you're getting tickets, that could be a deterrent. If you don't know any better, you're like, oh, well, crap, I don't have a business. You know, I'm not going to try to get these and find out that they're, they're going to want to see credentials or something like that and not let me in. There are hmm. a lot of um, like smaller, I guess, businesses that you would think of like people doing woodworking for a profession, like one person, two person shops. There are mm-hmm. a lot of those people there. So I think that Lee Valley, for instance, was a good draw for them for that segment mm-hmm. of people that, that were there. Sure. But the other thing I have to realize with these shows is there's like distributors there and retailers and buying agents. So you kind of have exposure to those people if you want to get your products into more stores or distributed throughout the country or however that works. Gotcha. Oh. Nice. Cool. Well, it sounds like it was a good time, worthwhile, and, uh, and the, lots of the fun. The real question I have, Matt, is did you, like, perfect the whole, like, handshake, slip the card, you know, in the handshake <laughs> move while you were there? You know, at, how, how smooth were you by the end of it in approaching these marketing managers? And eh, you had your total spiel down. I, I didn't really – I didn't have much of a spiel most of the time. I think I just kind of introduced myself to a lot of them. It was just kind of nice to actually make those connections because uh, I hadn't – a few companies that I talked to this time I had never reached out to, but uh, personally, I know for me, if I'm look, trying to find advertising for my stuff, it's a pain in the butt because these companies don't care. So it was really nice to be able to be there and actually get like instant results as opposed yeah. to like following up with people like endlessly for them to just ignore you. Right. So, so you mean instant there. rejection? Yes. Well, I don't care yeah, either nice. way. You know, what's worse than <laughs> for them rejection? Nothing. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's <laughs> profound. That's really deep. <laughs> Yeah, and then you can give them like the the sad puppy dog eyes and let them know, you know, how sad you are when they say no. It's a little harder <laughs> for them to turn you down. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, good stuff. What All about right. you, Shen? Uh, I'm in the middle of a of a project actually for the lumber yard. I'm building a um I don't know what you want to call it, like an awards plaque for um sales uh achievements like million dollars in sales and things like that nice um so i'm gluing up this 30 inch wide quarter sawn sapili panel i've got some uh just two two pieces so they're about 16 inches wide i'm going to trim it down from there and then i'm going to do um some um stringing inlay in the shape of our logo the logo is just a big m um and i'm going to do all the stringing on that um to outline the m and then probably put in, I think we're probably going to inlay some actual 
I don't know whether it's brass or some sort of metallic engraved plaque that's like, you know, salesman of the month or something like that. Nice. But I'm kind of playing around with um, it was uh, it was my boss that actually chose the Sapili. And it looks awesome. I've got it in the clamps right now. You know, the quarter sawn ribbon perfectly pinstriped look right up the up the panel. And it's, you know, it's 30 inches wide. So it just looks cool. But now I'm starting to think, you know, what am I actually going to use for the stringing? And like, how bold do I want it to be? Like, how wide do I want it to be? Um, And light stringing, it just looks terrible (laughs) against that deep kind of red color of Sapili. Yeah. But dark almost looks like it's going to get lost. So I think I'm going to have to go wider. So it's not really stringing at that point. I don't know where you draw the line between stringing and and it's just inlay. Because in order to make something dark... Uh, you know, like I'm not going to use ebony, but you know, just use ebony as an example. I think the darker stuff tends to kind of get lost in that sea of red. And you've got the whole ribbon stripe thing going on. That's only going to darken up once I put finish on that. So I'm really kind of like not sure what to do here. Hmm. Um, and immediately, you know, my boss is like, well, I would just use maple or whatever. And I was like, I just think that looks terrible. Just too much like, contrast. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Way too much <laughs> contrast. Like I don't like maple and walnut together. I think it's just, I don't know. It looks crafty. <laughs> I hate to even say that because <laughs> how dare you, you know, sir? <laughs> like, I've got, I mean, I got sitting behind me a, a maple and wenge box. Where is it? Uh, yeah, it's well, too but, far away. You know, but you think about it that that perfectly fits that kind of market, like the craft show market. Um, and I don't know. I, I'm already like offending people by saying that, but I did the craft show circuit for a while and I don't have fond memories of it. Stop Look at talking. This Look at this piece of crap I'm showing on the video, huh? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Look at that. Oh, it's awful. Oh, come on, Mark. What get that garbage. Now, nah, and for those who aren't, who aren't watching, I actually did just make a box with walnut and maple, um, which I agree. There is an extent where you go a little bit too far with the contrast and it just becomes a little uh, garish, you know, but I think on a smaller scale, and maybe I'm, people are like, he's backpedaling now. But no, on a smaller scale, <laughs> like you have in that box. Yeah. See, I've seen boxes like that that have like four different species of wood in it. And that's just ridiculous. That's, yeah. That's you know, Mark's just got a the body of the box is walnut. And then he's got two like end caps that are that are um, maple. Yes. And to me, that looks fine because you're dealing with a small scale. I'm talking about 30 inches, 30 by 30, you know, mm-hmm. of, of Sapili. And I just think. I don't know. I just don't think it looks good. So I don't, I'm going to have to play with this a little bit and I'm not sure how to do it because I guess I could just do it on the backside. Yeah. You know, that's what you said. What? Whoa. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was too easy. I had to do it. Oh, wow. Family show <laughs> or not. I'd say any bad has, words. This hasn't been a family show in years. What am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> there are people out there that subject their families to this show. Yeah. But it's not uh, family much, show. much to the family's chagrin. And uh, that's yeah. why the kids go to sleep. Uh, you know, to right. answer your question, I think, and I'm just making this up as I go along, the difference where, where you cross the line from a stringing to an inlay is when you can't bend it anymore yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. When you think? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, this there are no curved lines in an M. <laughs> so yeah. I can inlay, you know, quarter-inch wide stuff. I suppose there could be, but... If you make it nice and <laughs> cursive-like. Yeah. yeah. If you're all fancy, fancy. like Matt Cremona, the way he signs his stuff. Fancy you know, lettering. Curly Q and stuff. Signing but. all the ladies at the the booth this weekend yeah. with a Sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I love your but, YouTube uh, channel, man. Other other than that, that's all that's on my bench right now. I didn't get a lot of work in the shop this weekend because I started last week by pulling a bunch of weeds and turned out weed was actually poison ivy. So (laughs) I've I've been feeling sorry for myself most of the week and trying not to scratch and trying not to like claw my eyeballs out because everything itches right now. I'm extremely allergic to poison ivy. I got it pretty much every year when I lived in New Jersey, just like going biking with my friends and uh, I, I'm now extremely sensitive to it. Thankfully, I just never come across it out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same way. A tiny little exposure and it ends up everywhere. Yep. So yeah, I've already been to the doctor and gotten my steroid shot and it's helping, but it's just annoying yeah. now because it's just, I'm covered in pink calamine lotion. It's nice. so pretty. I'm very pretty in pink. <laughs> it is no fun. No fun at all. Uh, all right, well, let's move into what's new. And it looks like we've got one here. Two people sent this in. Um, and actually this has been kind of the buzz uh, on Facebook and social websites this week. Have you seen the handheld CNC router thingy? Uh, the one produced by shaper tools. Now we've talked about this when, even when it was just kind of a concept video from some student at MIT 
we talked about it on Wood Talk, and it, it doesn't look all that different now. It just looks like it's a little bit more of a finished product. And I don't know how close they are to actually launching, but I think they're they're definitely getting close enough that they're taking pre-orders, if I saw correctly. And they've got some vendors on board who are taking pre-orders for this stuff as well, if, again, if I'm not mistaken. So if you haven't seen it, we'll, we'll put a link to the, the website, and they've got all the videos there. You can see this thing in action. Basically, think of a, a larger format sort of handheld router that you move around manually, but it's intelligent, and it knows when you're going off course and follows a particular pattern, and you just have to stay within the wide lane that it creates for you to, to create this pattern. And it's just an, a very intelligent router system and just has this handheld CNC sort of um, you know mystique around it. And I guess everyone wants to know what we think about it. And I did talk about this on the last Friday live show that we do weekly uh, on YouTube. And for me, I think it's cool. I think any advancement in technology is great. Let's just see what comes of it and what gets inspired because this thing hit the market. Like I I love when things uh, people build upon new ideas. I don't think it's something that you would ever want to criticize because it's, I don't know. I just think anything that's new and and unique and brings something to the table uh, let's embrace it. Let's keep moving forward, not backwards. Um, but of course, you can't talk about this without getting a certain segment of the crowd who's like, bah, that's not real craftsmanship. Why don't you go buy something from Ikea instead? You know, which drives me nuts. So, uh, well, you know, their, their um, whatever promo video, it starts with things shouldn't be hard to make or things making shouldn't be hard or something like that. And yeah. it's like, you know, the the traditional craftsman in me immediately like, no, it should be hard. You know, there's <laughs> people out there are going to make it hard. And then it's like, no, actually, you know, because the response, why don't you go to Ikea and make something? Well, yeah, or you could design something yourself, you know? Right. Because I think I think the design is what it's become more about in kind of the whole makerspace, maker community. It's more about, you know, playing with your ideas and doing something that you want. You know, the whole idea that drew a lot of us into woodworking in the first place was the ability to make it custom to exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is breaking down a barrier, frankly. And I think the coolest thing about this is, you know, CNC relies upon the bed and the bed being perfectly flat and your, your cutting implement, whatever it is being calibrated to that bed. This, you just like put the little tape down on your board and it images (laughs) the tape and it turns your work into the bed, which I think is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's, it turns the whole CNC thing on its head. Yeah. And, and even, though, me, even though it's small format, you can do something right. larger than your average CNC can do capacity wise. Yeah. Which is interesting, which by the way, um, it, they're expecting to ship September. Okay. So wow. they're taking Ooh, sales right now as a way to kind of fund the manufacturer. So they're actually are selling them, but you won't get, you know, I guess it says delivery. I don't know if it's expected, you know, yeah. delivery could be November, but they're saying September. So okay. that's mm. like in a couple of days. Wow. But what I want to know is how much does that tape cost? Right. Like Cause you're going to need something you have to put down, you know, <laughs> can you like oh, pull well, it that's up? $3,200 and... a square foot. So yeah. Is it reusable? That'd be nice. Right. I, I don't know, but it's very cool. I mean, cool innovation to just say, Hey, let's put something on our work and let the machine calibrate to like, you know, the, the tape we just laid down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it looks like dominoes, which is fun. <laughs> Something you would think about Matt picking up for the shop. I, I really like, I'm not familiar enough with it, I guess at this point, but I would really like it for like doing bigger stuff that I couldn't do on like a small CNC mm-hmm. because like the problem with CNC is they take up so much space. So being able to have something you can kind of store away without much space take, you know, taken up would be really handy to have. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the thing. And I've thought about CNC in the past. And one of the that's exactly one of the reasons why I don't do it is the physical size that it takes up. And then the other hobby involved, you know, like taking the time to get it set up, calibrated, getting to know its nuances, getting to be good at using the machine. The thing that, you know, if that's what you want to do and you like CNC, you're going to love doing that. To me, it's just more work because I want to get back to building furniture, you know, so I've, I've just never wanted to, to dive into it. Uh, head first the way a lot of people do or the way you would need to to really harness it this however does strike me as being something that might be a little bit more like jump in figure it out and you should be able to get going within a relatively short amount of time and it does not take up any sort of appreciable footprint in the shop which is pretty cool right and it's fifteen hundred dollars right now yeah which is pretty amazing for what it does I mean, yeah, they're saying retail will be twenty one hundred. Okay, but the whole limited quantity thing—they're selling it. I guess it's going to go up to seventeen hundred mm. at some point. But 
Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, I'll tell you what. Give us some kickback on this, folks. Uh, let us know what you think of it. If you're just going to say it, it's not real craftsmanship, I'll be honest. I don't want to hear that, um, and we won't yeah. talk about that. I'm just curious what you think about the technology. <laughs> if you've got CNC experience, how you think this thing is going to compare, and and you know use cases where you might actually use this thing. I'd love to hear about that stuff. Um, the one real criticism I have about this is they've got a whole bunch of project videos on their website. Which, which are cool. Like, I want to click on them all and, like, watch how they do it. But they use the same stupid soundtrack for all of them. Oh, really? <laughs> so by the time we get to the third That's one, I'm criticism. like, ah, I want to hear something different. <laughs> it's, it's, the soundtrack is not bad. It actually fits, like, the machine. It's this very kind of futuristic kind of, I don't know, digital campy Jetsons type soundtrack. Yeah. But by the time you get to the third video, you're ready to hear something Yeah, else. you're done with it. <laughs> no problem with that. Cool. There's like 12 videos on here that all look fun. I want to check them out, though. I haven't seen any of those. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah, good all right. What's the next one here? I think it's oh, your Shannon, isn't it? And at the Shaper website. Eh? Stop, Stop, man. <laughs> We're doing a We're show here. Leave me alone. All right. This uh, kickback from, comes from somebody, from Joe. Um, he says, I was just listing with complete scorn on your shameful sellout celebration when something perked my ears. Hold on. I think you're reading the wrong thing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, we're, we're on the second item in what's new. <laughs> You're all excited. Sorry. I'm excited about the shaper thing. I, it's not often that I get excited about a power tool. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I actually added this. This is from uh, Chris, uh, his YouTube channel, um, Four Eyes Design. Oh, I think yes. the YouTube channel is just mm-hmm. Chris Solomon. We talked about him but, before, right? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about some of his stuff. Um, he built this, like, coat rack that I just love. Like talking about design, it's it's just awesome. It's it's a flat board with um, angled dados in it, mm. and he just made a, a variety of of hooks and like shelves and things that just slot into the angled dado, um, like ten degree dado. Um, but it was one of those things where he was cutting the dado out, and he got horrible, horrible burning inside the dado, mm. like it was black inside the dado. Jeez. So he's like, well, rather than figure that out, I'm just gonna paint it. So he paints the inside of the dado like this electric chartreuse green, <laughs> which at first you're like, what the heck are you thinking against the maple? But it's awesome. Really? It looks so good when it's done. Nice. Um, and, it, you know, you, you expect it. There's people complaining about it was great until you painted it, you know, but it's just a it's a, a cool example of somebody that really has a good design sense, took a single board. You know, I think he glued together to have like a like a cherry strip down the middle, if I remember correctly. Um, and this thing is just hanging like by his front door. It's just a flat board with a variety of walnut hooks and shelves and things to put keys on or various, you know, th- uh, Thomas the Tank Engine toys. You know, <laughs> it's just it's just cool. It's a really great thing that kind of talks about what we were just talking about with the uh, Shaper Tool thing. You know, the, yeah, that's something that, you know, would be possibly sold in an Ikea, but he made it himself. And that yeah. chartreuse green pop is just so cool on it. So. Nice. Kudos, Chris. I love the design. Cool. I like it a lot. Good deal. Now we can go to our kickback. And I uh, got one here from Adrian. He says, back in episode 318, you were talking about wax finishes and mentioned that tried and true finish on the rocker doesn't look like it did when you first finished it. I just watched that build and was really uh, loving the finish, was excited to build the rocker and use tried and true finish on it, but now I'm a little concerned about using it. Would you be able to post some current pictures of the rocker? I would like to see how it looks now and possibly reassess what finish I want to use. Well, I cannot do this because the rocker is actually sort of in storage right now in preparation for the move. And uh, I'll tell you what, here's an easy way to do it. Now, I made mine out of walnut. Go get a piece of walnut, sand it up, go get some cheap boiled linseed oil, wipe a coat on it, one coat, wipe off the excess, and come back the next day and look at it. That's what the chair looks like. So Hmm. it looks like there is finish in the grain, but nothing of like a substantial level of finish. There's There's no film, there's no sheen. At least, I mean, you might be able to get a light, a hard light on it and, and make it appear like there's some sort of sheen. But there, when I had it first finished and the videos that I took, it actually looked fantastic. And I've got um, my pizza peel over here that kind of has the same thing because it hasn't been used, hasn't been cleaned, nothing's been done to it. So it, it really, even after the eight coats or whatever that I put on it, um, there 
there, there, it just doesn't have any kind of luster to the surface. And that's, that to me tells me there's finish on it. Uh, it also doesn't repel moisture at all. Um, someone actually cleaned it with a, a slightly damp rag and the grain raised on it, um, which was kind of, you know, kind of unexpected. I expected it to at least repel a little bit of the water and it really didn't. So I don't want to disparage the finish because I like their line of products. And I think for certain things, I will continue to use them, especially food items, I think is a great option. But for a piece of furniture that needs to have at least some level of durability, as much as I like the company and the brand, I don't like the product. And I don't think it offers a whole lot more than just a can of boiled linseed oil. So you could find out yourself what it looks like. Just go test that out, like I mentioned, and you will see exactly what my chair looks like today. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, wow. but it's the reality of oils. And as much as I try to, to, to convince myself that some even the, <laughs> like the really great um, polymerized oil finishes and like, they, I'm sorry, they don't make that much of a difference. And they all, to me, unless you put some wax in it, you know, which it has is a, is a whole nother ball of wax. They don't do it. <laughs> like, unless you put a little wax in it or you decide to actually put a varnish component in there, some polyurethane or like a high grade varnish, you are just getting oil and absorbing in, into the wood. There are things where that works and things where that, like where I find that to be a good idea. And for anything that requires any level of protection, I don't think it's a good idea, and I'm, I'm just going to have to take a hard stance on that from now on because I keep trying things, hoping it's going to be better, and it just isn't. Oil is oil, and it acts like oil, and that's, you know, end of the story for me. So obviously, you know, it's in storage. You're not going to do anything about it, but have you thought about, like, because, I mean, it's a beautiful chair, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't just leave it like that. What are your thoughts? Are you going to just put armor seal on it or well i'm gonna go back to it um the thing is one of the finishes that i used from tried and true does have a wax uh, part of the mixture so i will probably go back um give it a nice little mineral spirits and then denatured alcohol sort of wipe down just to try to clean as much of the crap off of it if there is at this point i don't know how much residual wax is even on the surface uh but i will try to clean it up give it a nice light sanding at you know probably my highest grit and see if i can't get back i don't really care if i get back to bare wood like as long as i kind of right. smooth the surface out i'll be all right mm. uh, and if it doesn't gum up the sandpaper or the the sanding pad that i use it'll it'll be fine and then i might just go with uh, like off the shelf watco danish oil you know one or two coats would give me something that i would find to be a very low luster low build but satisfyingly smooth finish that actually offers some protection Sounds good. I guess that's the beauty of the pure oil. It's not like there's yeah. going to be any bonding issues or anything. Yeah. Like that. Except for that wax component. I don't know how much of a factor that's going to yeah. be, but I still think as mm -hmm. you know, the chair has been used, it's been sat in, um, and with a little bit of cleaning, I think it'll probably be fine. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's disappointing, but it is what it is. So what a shame. Yeah. All right. Now I can talk about Joe and his kickback. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you want to skip the voicemail? <laughs> Just sure, the next not? section. <laughs> <laughs> this is very technical, and, and I'll say, well, Joe, oh, okay. Joe, perfect. I can do something else for a little bit. <laughs> Joe was upset with us because we were selling out, but then he said uh, we were discussing the small amount of movement a mahogany panel would experience in Southern California lean-to, in a Southern California lean-to, that had conditions ranging from 40 degrees, 50% relative humidity, to 90 degrees, 50% relative humidity. Someone stated that the amount of moisture, moisture movement in the panel would be minimal because the relative humidity percent was the same. Isn't the amount of moisture the wood soaks up or releases more so based on the actual moisture available in the air? The two conditions presented in the original question have vastly different humidity ratio, also known as absolute humidity. <laughs> 40 <laughs> degrees at 50% relative humidity equals 18 points of moisture per pound of air. 90 degrees at 50% equals 106.5 grains of moisture per pound of air. My sciency and engineery brain tells me there is truly a big moisture difference at those two conditions. A pound of air takes up 13.5 cubic feet. So the space that the panel is occupying is nearly six times the moisture content at the warmer condition than it does in the cooler condition. Love the show. Glad you guys didn't repress Matt too much now that Shannon is back from the land of financially enabled Viking cosplay fans. That's the whole reason I picked this, is just as that last time. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Joe, you're absolutely right. That's why it's called relative humidity. You know, depending on how warm the air is or how cold the air is, it can hold more or less moisture. So, yes, you're right. There is more moisture in the air. I still don't change my answer. <laughs> I still think a quarter inch is good to go because I think. 
I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I think we put way too much emphasis on wood movement and how dramatically it's going to change things. Um, you could punch those numbers into like the Woodshop app, and you're probably still going to see that a quarter inch is going to be enough for you. But so, this is yeah. where I, this is where I'm a little confused on this, and I, I don't want to argue with his um, his his math or or logic because he knows more about this than I do apparently. But when I when I use these apps. Uh, if I don't see a change, it supports what we were saying. So I'm just right. as an example, looking at the wood, sh- the woodshop widget and who knows, maybe the widget is wrong. Um, but I know the guy who made it and he's pretty smart and yeah, uh, I would think he would have done his research for this. Uh, but looking at something from, um, you know, keeping the humidity the same, but only changing the temperature doesn't really have a whole lot of impact in wood movement like nil. So I don't. Right. So again, I don't want to. Argue, I'm just saying so the resources that we typically use support what we're saying. So maybe everybody's wrong, is what it comes the, down to. The fallacy in Joe's argument is when he says the amount of moisture the wood soaks up or releases is based on the actual moisture available in the air, and that's not quite correct. It's not you know because the wood itself has an equilibrium that it will sit at, and that equilibrium is not necessarily the same as your relative humidity because that's changing all the time. The other thing at play here is, you know, is it air dried or kiln dried and how quickly or readily will it absorb moisture from the atmosphere? And what's the finish that's on it? And how is that slowing that absorption? So, yeah, that is the 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 problem with his argument is that because there's a lot more moisture in the air, shouldn't it be sucking up a lot more moisture? You know, if, if that were the case, then that dry sponge that's sitting on your kitchen sink should be moist and damp because there's six times more air, more moisture in the air, right? And as we know, it's not. You know, it gets to a certain point and it's not absorbing anymore because it's in equilibrium. So, um, fact of the matter is, we put way too much emphasis on how much is it going to soak it up. You know, yeah. is it going to explode? Probably not. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's cool. Quarter inch. Thank you, thank you for that, Joe, because I think that's this is a cool insight if if what he's saying is accurate. No, it's accurate. I, I mean, <laughs> except for that part about. But then the calculators be, aren't accurate. No, but where what I'm saying is he's accurate about the whole relative humidity idea. Yeah. He's absolutely right. Um, little known fact: I have a minor in atmospheric physics. <laughs> Thought about becoming a weather guy for a while. So no, he's absolutely right. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a disconnect that where fuzzy math gets in there. Where how much does it actually absorb? There's a disconnect between our brains and the facts. So take yeah. that. Sounds good. All right, Matt, you're up. All right. This one is from Jack. He says, I was speaking with a friend of mine who is a trauma department administrator. The subject of bandsaws came up, and I was surprised when he remarked how dangerous they are and how many finger amputations they've seen that happen to bandsaw operators. I asked about table saw accidents, and he said that they really do not see very many of those. Seemed seemed, Seemed oddly proportioned based upon what we hear read hear and read online concerning table saw safety and accidents. In all fairness, table saws are pretty much dedicated to woodworking and band saws are used in several industries. More operators, more accidents. Maybe the accident per use ratio is on the two types of saws is similar. I don't know. Just food for thought. Certainly not scientific data. Interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. And I guess you're thinking like butcher shops and things like that. Now I would guess that when you relate this to woodworking, that a, a butcher like a dude who's like just hacking away at meat and bone, uh, you know, and just doesn't have to necessarily follow lines and things like that. Maybe that person might be more apt to throw their finger in the way. Maybe. I don't know. But the I think other thing too is he says finger amputations. So are they not like taking account just injuries from table saws that are actually like the partial the amputation, the blade, <laughs> or cutting like partial amputation, cutting, or even a kickback incident where it's not really, you don't really hurt your finger, but you got like a board to your face. Yeah. Right. I don't, you know, I don't know. Didn't, Oof. didn't, isn't there some stat out there that talks about most of the injuries, most of the table saw accidents are kickback related rather than actual like severing of, I, I've heard that. I don't know if it's actually. Yeah. True. I don't know if that's a statistic, but I know if you do like a general survey of people, you know, with table saws, you're probably going to find more kickback events than finger contacting the blade. I could tell you I've had right. maybe, I don't know, maybe three kickbacks in my time at the table saw and zero contact with the blade. Yeah. yeah. Same boat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even it, had a kickback issue. Right? I still got these things. Yeah. Right. Which is why, you know, when, when folks want to get on the, the saw stop, you know, 
bandwagon, it's the, the reality is the real thing that's probably more likely to happen is you getting a board sent into your gut, you know, as opposed to being cut. It's not, not to say that you don't want that other protection. Of course you do. Uh, but saw stop is no better at stopping kickback than any other table saw except for Matt's because he doesn't have a splitter. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. True. So, uh, next one. Uh, With mine, you can feel it coming. You know it's coming. <laughs> That's right. He just knows it. Uh, all right. Next one here is from Metis. Matisse. He says, hey, guys, while you're uh, mentioning makerspaces, you should ship Matt 15 miles south to Twin Cities Maker for one of their Wednesday evening open houses. What do you think, Matt? You ready for that? You're, you're, tra- no, you're traveling you're, you're Matt paying. these days. <laughs> oh, I'm not paying. No. It's just like the idea of shipping Matt somewhere, you know, <laughs> actually holes in the box. And he is quite small. So you could probably fit him in a large, you know, U S postal service, one rate box or something. That's true. Yeah. Send him, dog send him priority mail and just give him a little uh, sippy cup of water. He'll be fine when he yeah. gets there. Tasty cake cupcakes in there with him. Yep. And let, him just let him out the pee and poop when he gets there. Uh, so he's, he basically goes on to say $50 or $55 a month gets members 24 seven access to over 8,000 square feet of shop in an awesome community, woodworking machine tools, CNC, laser cutters, welding studio, 3d printers, industrial sewing machines. You can forget about those, uh, electronics, <laughs> prototyping equipment, and a host of other tools in addition to a wealth of knowledge and classes. So it sounds like a great facility, twin cities maker. And uh, I guess open houses every Wednesday, go check it out. All right, cool. So we've got some voicemails here. And I will play these directly from Skype and hopefully not screw them up. Although, shoot, now that we're doing the video, I wonder if this is going to change what people see. It probably will. If it does, sorry about that. First one's from Bill. Hey, guys, it's Bill from Las Vegas. So I have a pretty simple question for you, and I will keep it short. I know how you feel about long voicemails. Um, My question is, how do you select joinery for a project? I feel like this is something they covered in, like, Woodworker 101, I must have slept through that one because I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time. Anyway, thanks. Love the show. Bye. All right. I think that was Bill from Maker Shussel, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds like him. Yeah. And uh, by the way, again, I'll mention it again. We've mentioned it on this show, and I gave him a lot of um, uh, you know props on social media recently. I love that show. It's really, really good. So if you haven't listened to it yet, Maker's Hustle, uh, yeah. look it up. Yeah. I, I binge listened to what all seven episodes just uh, this past weekend. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Really, really, really good. Um, they're in shustle. That's right. Keep it shustling. Uh, what, what the heck was his question? Oh, joinery. So, joinery. Um, <laughs> because you know, that, that is something that we could probably do an entire show on. And I think we have in some, in fact, I think we have, I think you have in some form or another done this. So maybe Bill, go check out our search and just see if you could find it. Let's do sort of a quick, run through uh, each of us. If, if there's anything that comes to mind that, that you do special when it comes to joinery. And I think for me, a lot of times joinery was, was a thing that came down to the amount of exposure to what my options were and what is typically done, basically learning from people who know woodworking and furniture. So there are just times where you look at a certain thing, this piece needs to go into this piece and it only makes sense to do it this way or to use this type of joint or here's the, here's the cheap and inexpensive or, you know, sort of a low skilled way to join these pieces. Now here's the really high end way to join these pieces, Uh, but they all kind of accomplish the same thing. So I think a lot of it was just seeing what other people do and then second nature, just kind of now you look at two pieces of wood that, you know, need to go get together a certain way. There's just only so many ways that, that I can think of to put those two together. Um, but it really, I mean, is it, I'm sure with you guys, as long as you've been building, it's probably at the same point. It's second nature. You don't really think about it very much, right? No, no, not really. really. Yeah. I mean, for like fundamental stuff, certainly not for, um, maybe you're going out on a limb and you're designing something that's like really unique, um, outside the box. Then you go, well, maybe I could do this clever sort of thing. But other than that, and that's a very rare instance for me, uh, will I ever give it any more consideration than, okay, what do other people do in this situation? Yeah. I I think it all comes down to just being a student of, of other stuff. Whether if, I mean, if you're if you're into building furniture, just being a student of furniture and paying close attention. And we've all been sitting in the restaurant, you know, and like looking under the table or like looking at the chair we're sitting in or yep. looking at the chair that the attractive lady across the restaurant is sitting in. <laughs> really just looking at the chair. I promise. Just looking at the chair <laughs> um, and, and, and seeing like, how does that stretcher fit into the leg? And, ooh, you know, how what is that angle there? And just, you know, dissecting. You know, undressing the furniture, basically, oh boy. to keep with my same metaphor. Um, you just find yourself doing that. I mean, I'll be sitting in in a, in a building and I'll look up and go, oh, look, it's a timber frame 
ceiling. Oh, cool. Look at the, you know, the angle cut into that truss as it intersects with that post. And, you know, you just start to kind of absorb that stuff so that, like Mark said, it's kind of second nature mm-hmm. um, the, to the point where when I have tried to be fancy and like use dovetails, like not around the corner usually goes wrong because I suddenly right. realize, oh, wait, the grain's got to be running this way or the tail <laughs> snaps off. You know, I mean, how many times have I made a short grain tail because I was trying to be fancy and use dovetails in a place that I probably should have used a mortise and tenon? Yeah. You know, and, and then you learn, oh, wait, <laughs> that dovetail snaps right off when yeah. you work. You, you know, realize like, conventional wisdom thing. is there for a reason in some of these cases. Right. Mm-hmm. See, that's why everyone always does it this way, you know, because <laughs> it doesn't really work. Um, yeah. When it, when it comes to like the strength of joints, I get questions about this a lot. Like, you know, how deep should I make the groove or how deep should the dado be? You know, I just go half the thickness of the piece. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of works well, you know, there's really, or with, with a, with a, a tenon, you know, half the thickness or a third of the thickness of the piece you're putting, uh, putting it into, you know, yeah. works great. And, and that's kind of what's been in use for millennia. Yeah. And I think from a broader perspective, you can kind of look at the the piece you're building and the function of the piece and make a decision on uh, how deep you need to go with that joinery. So for instance, this little box that I made that I showed earlier, uh, Mm -hmm. do I really need for something like this, do I really need a mortise and tenon joint along here on this little leg for a tiny decorative box? I don't think so. I mean, there's probably other things I could have gotten away with that could have very well been simpler because this is not a really, I'm not sitting on this. I might depending on my mood. Uh, but most likely I will not be straining that connection very much, but I wanted to do it. So I, I used joinery that was overkill because, because I can, and that's what I wanted to do to make this box as, as good as I could possibly make it. So sometimes it is a matter of also looking at what this piece is intended for, what kind of weight it's supposed to be able to, or what it'll be subjected to, and then adjust accordingly from your, your most durable solutions to your, to your least uh, durable solutions. Uh, all right, let's go to our second voicemail here. Who's it from? Hold on. Got it written down. It's from Michael. Michael. Hey, guys. This is Michael from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, love the show. Uh, just have a quick question. I've been uh, sanding some engrim on some small project parts uh, using a, a sanding block. Uh, and the, the corners, the ends, keep rounding over. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to keep that from happening. So uh, if you have any advice on the best way to... Uh, and end grain on small pieces. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Sanding end grain, small pieces. Uh, Matt, I'll let you talk because, uh, you know, it's important to be fair. <laughs> For small pieces, if I'm going to be sanding it, sandpaper stays stationary and the piece moves on the sandpaper. Usually if I do it by hand, that's the way I'll do it. Um, otherwise, if I have to do it with a power sander the harder the platen the better mm-hmm. that way it doesn't end up like running over as you're sanding it so i have the hard pad on the festool sander i know you guys have talked about that in the past like can't even find different hardness of pads for <laughs> the sanders you have i knew that was some kind of giant thing that happened a while ago yeah. but <laughs> some kind of giant thing <laughs> yeah we talked about it like once <laughs> yes totally <laughs> i'm with you all right so <clears throat> excuse me so what was the first thing you said? I know you said a harder platen. What was the first thing? Uh, move the piece on the sandpaper instead of moving the sandpaper on the piece. So okay, piece, gotcha. Slap the piece of sandpaper down on your bench or table saw, whatever flat, and then rub the piece on the sandpaper. Okay. But, yeah, uh, like that. Yeah. The only thing I could add to that is maybe, depending on what you're doing, you might have multiples. And if you can, gang them together and clamp them so you're actually sanding more than one at once to give yourself a little bit more side-to-side support if possible. Uh, the other thing, and this, this, you know, might go into Shannon land, Shannon territory (laughs) is, uh, it's a happy place. It is. (laughs) Uh, This to me sounds like a great place to have some sort of a smoothing, like shooting board set up where you could just take the the most (laughs) finest of passes. And if the, if the grain cooperates and you can get a nice clean cut on there, how great would that be for these tiny parts? And for small parts like that, it might be worth coming up with a little jig that allows you to do just that. And just one quick swipe, boom, you know, from I'm a tearing a, up, <laughs> right? Isn't it nice? <laughs> <clears throat> but I think that actually could be a good solution for these small pieces too. And a heck of a lot faster with no chance of rounding over. Um, now you just have to contend with potential, uh, you know, tear out issues or a grain that doesn't cooperate, but you should, there's ways to solve those problems too. Yeah. I don't like planing in grain, but I really don't like sanding in grain. So I would much rather plane it. Yeah. Get a nice, clean, shimmery, 
lustrous surface mm. off a shooting board or just a block plane or heck even a chisel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when it's really small, then it gets a little hairy. Right. <laughs> don't be, don't be holding the piece in your hand and using a chisel on it. I not was going to do another. That's what she said, but I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> but to, to go with Matt's point, that's the same thing where I oftentimes will clamp like a block plane upside down and run the piece yeah. over the sole of the block plane. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, just keep your fingers clear of it. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where you can usually get a really, really clean surface that way um, yeah. when it's really, really small. Cool. All right. We got one more here. I think this is from Eric. Yeah, I think it's Eric. Hey, guys. My name's Aaron, and Aaron. I'm a longtime listener. Love the show. Keep it up. Thank you. I have a quick question. I'm using a five and a half to end joint eight quarter stock, and I get a nice shaving for the full length of the board, but then when I check the flatness uh, against the edge of a piece of uh, factory-supplied MDS, I see that there's a crown in the middle along the length. So I'm getting a full-width shaving, full-length shaving with my five-and-a-half, but it still has this like bump in the middle, and I'm not sure exactly how that could be possible. Uh, do I need to use a longer plane, or is there something off with my technique? All right, thanks. Keep it up. Bye. Hmm. What do you say, hmm. Shannon? Uh, I love this question because <laughs> you hear that a lot. <laughs> well, I got a full length and full with shaving, so it must be flat. Mm, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, sir, can very easily plane a crown into a board. It's a little bit harder to plane a hollow into a board. It's possible, but um, it's it's a technique issue where as you are working along that board, the slightest little change in pressure um, uh, of transfer of weight from the toe to the tail of that um, plane can result in planing a banana shape into the surface. So what you got to do is, first of all, grab as much of a straight edge as you can. And it sounds like you kind of already have that when you're trying to mate the edges and, and you're seeing this bow in the middle. But just verify it with a straight edge and see, you know, is it is it a little bit high in the middle? Grab your plane. The five and a half is a great size for this. And just take some passes right in the middle. Start right in the middle and take like a six inch pass. Then take another pass that's like 12 inches long. I don't know how long the board is, but, you know, you get the idea. Take a little bit out of the middle. You're trying to hollow out the middle. So to the point where then when you go back and you take a full length shaving, the plane should kind of stutter and not cut in the middle and only cut on the two ends. And frankly, you know, that's what we call a spring joint in some instances to a a minor degree. So you might just take a couple of full length passes and then try to go ahead and glue up that panel because you might be okay. But you definitely want to try to hollow that out in the middle. The way you you've got to avoid that is it all comes down to weight transfer. When you start your planing stroke, you've got a fair amount of weight on the knob at the front. You know, it's kind of registering the sole on the board. As the blade makes contact and starts to slide onto the board, you want to start transferring your weight towards the tote, towards the back of the plane. By the time the whole plane is on the board, there should be almost no weight on that knob in the front. In fact, you'll you'll see a lot of people actually remove their hand altogether from that knob as kind of a way to make sure you're not leaning into it. Um, because all it takes is a little bit too much lean on that knob and you will, you'll create a taper. Um, so that, you know, so your, your, your board is actually skinnier on the far side of the cut. Same thing happens when you start, you're really leaning into that cut and you end up taking more off at the beginning of the cut and not so much in the middle. Bless you. Thank you. (laughs) That was unexpected. So that's that's how you develop the crown, uh, just improper weight transfer. The the best thing to do is just always start in the middle and hollow it out. And, you know, ideally, you know, a nice long plane will help with that. But a long plane is still going to go up and over that hump because it's convex and not concave. Hmm. That makes sense. Gotcha. So the longer plane is not always the solution. Cool. All right. Well, if you want to uh, leave us a voicemail like those folks did, you can just... Uh, I guess we've got a phone number here, 623-242-5180. You can also just Skype us directly at Wood Talk Online. And uh, we like the voicemails. Keep them coming. And we do have one email to share here, sort of as a group, but uh, Matt will take the lead on it. Oh, I'll read it. Oh, boy. This is from John. It says, when gluing dovetails, finger joints, or just butt joints, do you glue all mating surfaces or just the long grain to long grain surfaces? I've been making boxes lately, and it's a real pain in the butt to get glue in every nook and cranny of the joints. Plus, doesn't seem like the glue on the end grain as much strength. Thanks. 
Are you going to take a poll or what are we doing here? Okay. So he's just going to read it. He's not actually going to This is how it. Matt takes the lead. <laughs> <laughs> just He just goes, um, all right. We could, I'll start off with the poll uh, here. Um, I only glue the long grain surfaces because there's less squeeze out to clean up. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's about it. That's what Tommy Mac does. That's what I do. <laughs> well, it's got to be right then. I, I agree, at least in theory, on <laughs> – I just caught that. Uh, I agree, at least in theory. You know, I, I If I'm pressed for time, I'm really only going to focus on the long grain. But if it's a small enough scale or maybe the, the pins and tails are large enough that I could easily get glue everywhere, I actually don't mind dealing with a little bit of squeeze out just to have a little bit of extra glue there. If it doesn't do anything, it doesn't do anything, but it's not likely to hurt anything. So I like to put it there anyway. Um, but I also know the whole time that I probably should just focus on the long grain and not even worry about it because it probably isn't adding a whole lot to the joint in the first place. Shannon, what about yeah. you? I'm I'm kind of in the, in the same boat where I don't really mind all that much squeeze out, especially because I end up planing those joints like later. Yeah. Um, so I, to me, it would actually slow me down to actually, well, I'm only going to put glue on this surface because it's usually just kind of slop it in there, <laughs> you know, and, and, and get as much on there as I can. When we're talking dovetails, especially, you know, in some instances, I actually kind of want a little bit of glue on that end grain because it might maybe stiffen up some softer end grain or whatever, yeah. or maybe one of those particular joints I needed to sharpen my chisels and I got some of that like tear out on the end grain. So I figure, Hey, a little glue in there might stiffen that up. It's not really doing anything in the joint, but it would actually slow it down to actually stop and go, okay, now don't put glue there and skip over that surface, you know? Yeah. Um, but like on a tenon, I, I won't bother the end grain inside the mortise. Um, what's the point? You know, um, I'll well, usually then, just hit the sidewalls of the mortise <laughs> and the cheeks of the tenon. Yeah. And in that case, it's going to get glue on it no matter what you do right. anyway, because it's either going to yeah. pull in the bottom of the mortise or as you're sort of pushing it in, it's going to just scrape it off the sides. So, right. you yeah. know, you get it there by accident. Yeah. Want it there or not, it's going to be there. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, good stuff. I think that's really about it for today. Um, if you want to support the show, you can. You could set up a recurring donation over at woodtalkshow.com using the PayPal options, or you can catch us on Patreon. Woodtalk, no, no, patreon.com. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't put it in the show notes. Uh, patreon.com slash woodtalk is where you can go to join in, sign up, support us, help us out. You can get uh, T-shirts. You can get uh, cool stickers that we have now. You can get access to extra content which is going to be uh, starting because basically the way it works now, you, they don't charge everybody until the first of the month or like the first week of the month. So as soon as people start to be charged, we will start producing all that extra content and roll it out to users as time goes. Uh, so we will have extra emails being answered in the form of, you know, like we do on the show, but an extra email that you can get for signing up and, uh, and everything just kind of contributes to those goals that we talked about earlier. So we could bring you more content, which is kind of the, uh, the ultimate thing. And if you want to, something that doesn't cost you a dime, you can go into iTunes and leave us a review. I don't have any to read today because I'm too lazy to look it up, but just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and uh, click a star rating, say a little something, and we might read it on the show. And I might not. You never know. <laughs> you might feel lazy that day. Who knows? Just depends. Um, Shannon, you want to give them the contact info, and when you're done with that, I will do our read-off of all of the new patrons. Oh, yeah, go ahead and pick your theme music now. Okay, okay. There you go. All right, folks, if you have things you need to tell us about the show, you can contact us a couple ways. You can leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, or you can use our contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact. And you can go to the website. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Go to woodtalkshow.com. You can leave a comment on this particular episode. And as Mark said, this show is made possible through the generous support of our listeners. And if you want to be one of those generous people, go to patreon.com slash woodtalk. And don't forget, we have our own websites. Woodwhisperer.something, renaissance something, and, and myfromona.com. <laughs> All of those. Those are good, good, good websites. Uh, all right, so I'm going to read these off real quick here. And thanks for listening, everybody. And I don't have any copywritten material to use like we did last time. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, closed we'll, captioning will be provided by Matt. There you go. Oh, great. <laughs> all right, here we go Nitrotron, Michael Dunson, Thomas Parson, Rudai, Rudai, Rudy, Dave Tucker, Matt Williams, uh, Mike Matza, Matthew Chudy, Roger Silman, Bart Post, Michael Berry Sr., Chris Simmons, Sam Butler, Chris Johansson, Paul Freeman, Gonzalo Plaza, Luke, uh, Scott A. McWilliams, Matt Rudderham, Bill Levering, Baker Russell, 
No, that's not Bill. Wrong Bill. No, that's a different one. Bill Lavolsi. Okay, you know what? Bills are very confusing <laughs> to me. They all sound the same. Steve Avery, yeah. Jason Derezgi, uh, Eric Wright, Julian Seaborn, Andy Pridmore, Michael Schuler, Paul. I like when people just use one name, like the first name. Is great. <laughs> Paul. Uh, Scott Datch, Datchill, Dennis Rice, Woodworking Towel LLC, Jeff Anderson, John McCoy, Alan Wilson, Matt Gromes, Gromes, Tim Holliner, DJ Chrisman. Grimis. Yeah, something like that. Aaron Skinner, Stephen Alfred Purvis, Brett Corey, Corrieri, uh, Mark Burnell, Tom Winkleman, Eric McKnight, Timothy Webster, and Greg Knuckles. And by the way, when I mess up your name and I say it like three times, I'm not making fun of you. I just have no idea how to say your name, and I'm doing the best I, I can. Consider it a badge of honor when Mark messes up Yeah, name. I'm kind of throwing so spaghetti at the wall, honored. like hoping I get it right once out of the three times I try. So um, yeah. I do appreciate it, and I don't want anyone to think I'm making fun of them. And and I just have to add, if Bill Lavosi is not a Patreon already, you have to now because you just got your name read. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're obligated now, Bill. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. That probably means I should go support their Patreon. You probably should. I kind of have this rule. I don't want any. I don't, I don't want to like pressure other content producers to support me, so I'm not supporting any of them. Like, is that <laughs> is that a bad way to look at it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I support <laughs> yeah. I support some of the podcasts like outside of this like ht guys major spoilers like non-woodworking stuff that i'm a huge fan of um but but if once you start down that road of supporting your fellow content producers when does it end because there are so many patreon campaigns and then what's actually happening is you're just doing it to save face because i'll support you for five dollars you support me for five dollars and now the only people making money on this is patreon so let's just I won't all, do that. Like maybe we all uh, content producers just agree not to financially support one another. Leave that to the to the greater fan base in general, and then Patreon doesn't make that extra money. Maybe that's wrong. Perks. What if I want their perks? How do I get their perks? That's true. See, but here's the thing: for content it's all producers, about the swag for you, isn't it, Matt? It is. He's so, such a material girl. He really is materialistic. Uh, but well, why not have a? Uh, you know, something where people who are content producers get the stuff for free. You know? I, I, I agree, but Patreon doesn't make it right easy. Now. They don't make it easy to just kind of grant someone uh, patron patron level patronage level, I guess you would call it. Of course, so they don't get their money. Yeah, I guess. Okay, you've got a valid point, Matt. When you want the extras. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'm I'm uh, being too too much of a jerk about this, but it, it seriously it, though. Matt, stop being so rational. <laughs> I like I'm gonna hold on. I'm gonna put Matt on the spot here. Let's let's go to Matt Cremona's Patreon page and find out who he supports. Go ahead. <laughs> See oh, it. Oh. And it's and here's the thing, it's gonna be a a, a flipping uh, mortgage payment when you add all these together. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> right? I, I I don't think so unless my mortgage is for like the box on the corner of the street downtown somewhere. <laughs> a very small mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay, it, so here we go. He's supported by Matt. I like to make stuff. Nick Ferry, Electro Boom, Practical Engineering, and the Dusty Life Podcast. And I'm sh- I'm assuming that's it, right? They don't just take like the top. That's it. Okay. Yes. Why aren't you supporting Makers Hustle? Because I guess I haven't done it yet. Well, you better get on that. If you're going to be. Why are you supporting Makers Hustle? The perks Hustle, aren't right? good enough. Bill, get on the perks. Better perks. <laughs> it's all about the perks, baby. All right. We talked about this enough. Uh, I don't know. Maybe well, I'll rethink my position on this, but uh, probably not. <laughs> Probably not. All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>